In 1960, a Montgomery, Alabama city commissioner sued the New York Times for libel because of the way Southern police officers have been portrayed in a full-page advertisement. In uh, its landmark 1964 decision in the New York Times versus Sullivan case, the Supreme Court declared that the First Amendment protects newspapers from defamation lawsuits when they make mistakes as long as the newspaper hadn't acted with actual malice. In her latest book, Actual Malice, Civil Rights and Freedom of the Press in New York Times versus Sullivan, Samantha Barbas, a professor of law at the University of Buffalo School of Law, examines, among other things, what actual malice really means. It's published by the University of California Press and brings Professor Barbas to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Oh, well, this is really important stuff and it doesn't get enough attention. Didn't the case begin when the Montgomery City Commissioner opposed the content of an advertisement by supporters of Martin Luther King Jr. that ran in the New York Times? Can can you describe that uh, advertisement? Yes. So in some ways, the case did begin in 1960, as you describe when a civil rights group called the Committee to Defend Martin Luther King and the Struggle for Freedom in the South published a fundraising advertisement in the New York Times that accused officials in the South and in Montgomery, Alabama, of committing violence against civil rights activists. But really, the story starts in part uh, in the mid-1950s when uh, segregationists were waging an attack on the Northern press um, because of its favorable coverage of the civil rights movement and its support of integration and civil rights. Well, what were they doing before uh, they, they Sullivan? Before Sullivan, uh, they they had filed libel suits, uh, frivolous, essentially meritless libel suits intended to harass Northern media outlets. Uh, they were physically attacking journalists who went to the South to cover civil rights protests, right? Beating up reporters and cameramen. Um, so there was sort of an all out war on the press that was already happening when the advertisement was published in the New York Times in 1960. Didn't the ad contain several inaccuracies regarding facts such as the number of times Dr. King had been arrested during the protests, what song the protesters had sung, and whether students had been expelled for participating? Yes, there were a number of minor inaccuracies in the ad. As you suggest, uh, the ad said that student protesters had sung a particular song on the Capitol steps, and it turned out to be another song that they actually sung uh, minor errors about the number of times that Dr. King had been arrested. Um, But the gist or the overall meaning of the statements in the advertisement was true, which is that Sullivan and other Southern officials had been complicit in this brutality and violence. So he sued the newspaper for defamation because the advertisement portrayed Southern police officers mistreating protesters? Yes. Uh, Sullivan alleged that the facts were false and that they defamed him. They injured his reputation in the community. Now, these statements were more or less true in reality. And I don't think Sullivan's reputation had actually been harmed. In fact, it would probably increase his reputation in his community to be known for um, being complicit in this violence against civil rights activists. A jury trial in an Alabama state judge's court ruled in favor of the commissioner awarded him a half a million dollars. Hadn't that judge written articles in favor of white supremacy? Was he appropriate? Uh, The judge, uh, Walter Bergwin Jones, was a notorious segregationist who uh, had written these articles, you suggest, in the local newspaper, the Montgomery Advertiser, um, uh, supporting uh, segregation. Uh, He was a notorious white supremacist. And there was no chance uh, that the New York Times or the four civil rights leaders who had also been sued uh, by Sullivan were going to get any kind of a fair trial. Was it heard in other courts as well? 
Um, Sullivan's case was decided in uh, Jones's courtroom, and this went up on appeal to the Alabama Supreme Court, where the judgment was affirmed before the Times appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Other segregationist officials filed similar lawsuits, and by 1961, wasn't the Times facing 12 libel suits? What effect did those lawsuits have on media organizations like the Times and CBS and the press in general? Yes, uh, the segregationists uh, officials in Alabama filed uh, 12 libel suits against the New York Times with potential verdicts totaling about $6 million, which was enough to bankrupt the New York Times at the time. And really, these libel suits were posing an existential threat to the New York Times. And other media outlets were being sued as well for their coverage of the civil rights movement. Uh, CBS, the Associated Press, the Saturday Evening Post, Hmm. they faced potential judgments of up to $300 million in these libel cases brought by segregationist officials. Well, Sullivan went on to the Supreme Court, and in an opinion by Justice William Brennan, the decision was reversed. Uh, And it was determined that although the advertisement did contain those trivial inaccuracies, in a defamation case, the public official would have to establish actual malice and have knowledge that the statement was false or reckless disregard of whatever of whether it was false or not. Um, Now, and it was a nine to to zero decision, which is unlikely (laughs) with the current court. Yes, um, it was uh, unanimous. Uh, The court was very clear that uh, Sullivan's judgment had to be reversed and that libel laws as they existed were too strict. At the time, there were no First Amendment protections for speakers in libel law. And the New York Times lawyer made the convincing case that libel law had a chilling effect on the press. It was Mm -hmm. preventing responsible news organizations from reporting legitimate criticism of public officials for fear of these devastating libel suits. And the unanimous court, you say, declared that the right of citizens to criticize their leaders is the central meaning of the First Amendment and that freedom of speech is foundational to a democratic society. Now, okay, so why have some conservatives acted to overturn Sullivan? Yeah, I think what we've seen in the past uh, five or so years is this concerted conservative attack on New York Times versus Sullivan. It really started with Trump when he made some statements saying that he wanted to, quote, open up libel law to make it easier for him and his allies to sue the press for libel and win lots of money in damages. And I think this attack on Sullivan is really politically motivated, right? I think uh, there's the feeling that it would be a lot easier to silence the press uh, for conservatives to um, quash unfavorable press coverage through this mechanism of libel suits, just as the segregationists were trying to do in the early 1960s. Do Republicans think that they're the ones who are most likely to be affected? Um, I think, you know, and this uh, is the sentiment that's being expressed in the articles and uh, commentary against Sullivan these days is that you know the press is unfairly uh, biased against uh, conservatives and that libel law you know could be a way uh, to sort of force uh, the press they say to be more fair in its commentary and criticism of uh, Republican officials. But it wasn't just Donald Trump. The late Justice Antonin Scalia said he abhorred the case. And since 2019, haven't Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch called on the court to reconsider the precedent? And and, and in a recent roundtable discussion, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis joined other notable Republicans in challenging the ruling because they say it protects the press from defamation lawsuits. Yes, Uh Justice Clarence Thomas has said on a number of occasions that he would gladly vote to overrule Sullivan if given the opportunity. And Neil Gorsuch, in an extended dissenting opinion in 2021, explained why he thought the Sullivan line of cases needed to be altered. Uh, Gorsuch 
suggested that he would not vote to overrule Sullivan itself, but that he would support modifications of cases decided by the court in the 1960s in which it extended the Sullivan actual malice rule to libel cases involving public figures. And this attack on Sullivan has gained a lot of momentum, even in the past couple of weeks. As you uh, mentioned, there was this sort of pseudo press conference held by Governor DeSantis, which was essentially a opportunity to launch this attack on Sullivan and to call uh, for the Supreme Court to overrule that decision. Well, in, in light of what happened with Roe v. Wade, can we assume that there is a possibility that it would be overturned completely? Yeah, I think it's impossible to know what all of the justices are thinking about Sullivan right now. And we do know what Thomas and Gorsuch have said about Sullivan on multiple occasions. And the rest of the justices have not really voiced their thoughts. Uh, Justice Elena Kagan, uh, I think, a few decades ago had expressed some thoughts on Sullivan in a book review that she had written about a previous work on Sullivan by the New York Times Supreme Court journalist Anthony Lewis, in which she suggested that perhaps we need to think about the fact that reputations are not very well protected under United States libel law. And maybe it would make sense to tweak some of the uh, cases in the Sullivan line of doctrine. But that commentary, again, is a few decades old. And uh, other than Gorsuch and Thomas, we don't really know what the current court is thinking about libel law. Okay, well, libel, what a but how is actual malice defined? Is it the same as libel? Um, so actual malice, as the court defined it in New York Times versus Sullivan, what it means is that a public official or a public figure who brings a libel suit has to show that the speaker made the statement either knowing that it was false or with reckless disregard of the truth. So they have to show that the speaker entertain serious doubts about the truth of the statement, that they had strong reason to believe that the statement was false and went ahead and published it anyway. And that's a very high bar to clear. It has provided a lot of protection for freedom of speech and press, and it makes it very difficult for public officials and public figures to win libel suits in the United States. Have there been cases where actual malice was proven in a court of law? Uh, certainly. Uh, I believe there was a case involving uh, Rolling Stone magazine a while back in which uh, a public uh, figure who alleged uh, to have been defamed um, successfully showed that the magazine had operated with reckless disregard of the truth, that is, had strong doubts about the uh, truth of a statement uh, and relied on some known faulty sources and went ahead and issued those statements anyway. The Sullivan decision is considered to be one of the most important free speech decisions of all time. How far do its protections go? And who are the actual winners and losers in this case? Um, so the New York Times versus Sullivan standard protects all speakers, uh, regardless of their political orientation, regardless of the medium that they publish in. Uh, New York Times versus Sullivan protects the press, but it also protects ordinary citizens who wish to criticize uh, public officials or public figures. Um, and one of the things I try to really bring out in the book is how this case was, of course, about freedom of speech and press, but it was also very much about the civil rights movement, mm. right, and protecting the ability of the civil rights movement to convey its message to the public um, through their allies in the media at the time. And really, uh, the justices on the court were highly attuned to the fact that the civil rights movement very much depended on media coverage to shape national public opinion on civil rights. Uh, so, you know, the winners uh, of the New York Times versus Sullivan decision were not just the press, but also you know, the civil rights movement at the time. And, and really, you know, all speakers uh, who wish to comment on public affairs. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Samantha Barbas. Her book, her, um, is this your sixth or seventh? Uh, yes, it's my seventh book. Ah, uh, 
a number of books about mass media, law, and history. This one is Actual Malice, Civil Rights, and the Freedom of the Press in New York Times versus Sullivan, published by the University of California Press. Um, you, you write that uh, Sullivan has protected the right of citizens to speak out on public affairs and prevented officials and others in power from using libel law as a form of censorship to suppress criticism and dissent. But aren't there problems with Sullivan because it can protect false statements and discourage in-depth investigation into a story? Um, so one of the persistent criticisms of Sullivan and the Sullivan line of cases is that it really does not do enough to disincentivize the publication of falsehoods because false statements are protected by the doctrine unless they're uh, made with uh, actual malice. Um, so uh, that, you know, is, is something definitely that we need to think about and consider, especially today when, you know, we have uh, these problems with disinformation and misinformation proliferating, especially uh, online. Um, but, you know, as Justice Brennan said in the Sullivan opinion, uh, freedom of speech must have breathing room to survive. And we're going to have to tolerate the publication of some falsehoods in order to encourage uh, this robust discussion and the publication of true statements. Don't Republicans take advantage of this as well? For example, when they accuse uh, liberal uh, politicians of being Marxists or communists or Leninists or socialists. Certainly, uh, the New York Times versus Sullivan rule protects you know, all speakers, uh, speakers and publications of every political uh, persuasion, you know, can take advantage of uh, use uh, the shield of Sullivan, uh, you know, to protect themselves when they're issuing commentary uh, on politics and public officials. So once it was issued, it then uh, became applied to all state libel laws? Uh, well, New York Times versus Sullivan is it's a constitutional uh, standard right, established by the uh, First Amendment. And in subsequent cases, the court very importantly extended uh, the Sullivan doctrine to apply to libel cases involving public figures. So Sullivan itself deals only with public officials as plaintiffs, and the latter cases uh, involved public figures, and that's a category that the Supreme Court has defined fairly expansively. Haven't some argued that because Sullivan wasn't a typical libel case in which a plaintiff's reputation had been harmed, the court missed an opportunity to consider the relationship between freedom of speech and, and reputation? Yeah, that has been one criticism, that this was such an anomalous case. Uh, Sullivan's argument was so pretextual. I mean, it was apparent that this was part of a scheme to undermine the press and to undermine the civil rights movement. And, you know, the verdict was so outrageous. $500,000 was the largest judgment in the libel case ever issued to that time. Mm -hmm. And not only was there the case by L.B. Sullivan, but all of these officials were bringing these libel suits in this sort of libel warfare. Um, so, of course, you know, the court was very moved by these facts and very aware that there were all of these libel cases coming up through the courts and that the future of the press and the civil rights movement were really kind of on the line here. Um, so some have argued that that context didn't really give the court the opportunity to think in a careful way about the balance between freedom of speech and reputation that would be ideal. Um, and it should be noted that this was the first time that the Supreme Court really considered the constitutional aspects of libel law. Uh, and maybe it would have made a different choice, again, if the case had been brought under different circumstances and with a different plaintiff whose reputation really had been injured by critical statements. Well, under current law, when does something become libel? Yeah, so the definition of uh, libel or more specifically, a defamatory statement 
uh, is a statement that injures a person's reputation in his or her community. It causes them to be shunned by their peers. Uh, it lowers uh, their image in their professional community or makes others not want to associate with them. So something that is defamatory uh, really has to harm uh, a person's standing uh, in their communities and circles. Well, I know of a case where the Times has published something that uh most people think who who know the story think is untrue. They receive letters from people in defense of the person involved, and uh, they never publish any of those letters. In fact, they sometimes repeat the same story again in articles that uh, deal with the the same institutions. So, um, how do you get? A, powerful organization like the New York Times to pay attention? Um, yeah, I think um, that is a very difficult question. It probably goes beyond uh, the purview of uh, libel law. Um, yeah, well, the, the person involved didn't sue because it, it didn't have the money or anything else to pursue the New York Times. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, certainly, you know, one is not, uh, you know, foreclosed from filing a libel suit, but I think, you know, that there are uh, other ways uh, to get uh, newspapers to change uh, their commentary and, you know, to, to, to be accurate other than the mechanism of libel suits. Isn't one of the things that sets your book apart from other analyses of the New York Times versus Sullivan that you had access to archival material? What new archival material were you able to explore for this book? Yeah, so I was fortunate to have access to uh, the papers of various civil rights leaders that were involved in the case uh, that were sued by the segregationist officials, uh, the papers of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that was Martin Luther King's uh, civil rights organization. I was also able to look at the archives of the New York Times Company, uh, papers and correspondence related to the Alabama libel cases, which gave me a really interesting perspective on how the newspaper dealt with these libel threats and really the sort of existential threat that these libel suits posed to the New York Times in the 1960s. Well, the, the, the libel suit involved an ad. It didn't involve editorial policy. Is there a difference? Um, a number of segregationist officials in Birmingham later in 1960, in fact, not long after the advertisement was published, sued the Times over news coverage of uh, events uh, that were happening in Birmingham uh, in again, related to this brutality that the officials were inflicting on civil rights protesters. And that series of cases, I think there were 10 officials who sued the Times over its news reporting in Birmingham, was actually much more threatening to the newspaper because this was a direct attack on its journalism and news reporting. Well, we could point out that the Times has been... Um, hasn't lost a libel case in an American courtroom in over 50 years. Yes, I think that's right. How did you gain access to the archival material? You know, a lot of this material, in fact, all of the materials is publicly uh, available. Uh, the uh, papers of uh, the New York Times company were accessible through the uh, New York Public Library uh, and the civil rights organizations, papers are also accessible through various university archives. It was interesting, you know, there's been so much writing on the Sullivan case and the Sullivan doctrine, uh, but uh, very little of that writing had kind of looked into the litigation and the events that led up to the Supreme Court's decision. So that was one of the major objectives of my work was to figure out you know, what were the circumstances that brought this decision into being. Professor Eugene Voloch, a professor of First Amendment law at the University of California, Los Angeles, said 
that the protection to criticize public officials is very important and said that overturning Sullivan could have a chilling effect on news outlets worried about being sued for making unwitting mistakes while covering politicians and the government. Do we know how many unwitting mistakes are made typically? Um, that is a very difficult question uh, that I have no uh, access uh, to. Um, and, you know, I think it would really be very difficult for anyone, even in a news organization, to know uh, how many such uh, errors are made. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, he feels that it's still very important to protect the right to criticize public officials. Uh, do you think that that is the general consensus around the country? You know, New York Times versus Sullivan has really been a canonical uh, decision. Uh, there's very little criticism of it until uh, recent times. Uh, I think that most of the public is in favor of what the Sullivan decision stands for, which is this robust right of citizens in the press to comment on criticized public officials. Uh, Justice Brennan said in the opinion that there is a national tradition of uninhibited, robust, and wide open public discourse on public affairs, uh, that our national culture is one of supporting this kind of political conversation that may involve attacks on public officials, but nevertheless is robust and wide ranging. And I do think that's something that a majority of Americans still stand behind. Well, the latest stories involve social media. Social media weren't around when the Times published that ad. Um, are there different standards there? How has the growth of social media affected libel laws? Yeah, you know, that is actually one of the arguments that's come up a lot in these recent attacks on New York Times versus Sullivan, that we live in a very different communication environment today compared to 1964. It's much easier to defame people through social media, and that harm to reputation can really be damaging. It can be permanent, right? Things that are online uh, you know, cannot be erased. And uh, it's simply uh, much easier to tarnish someone's good name on a large scale. Um, so the argument then is that, well, we need to rethink these rules of libel and free speech that were created uh, in an era when public discourse was dominated by newspapers. Uh, and what does freedom of speech really mean uh, in you know, today's uh, political and social media climate? Well, now people are being banned from Facebook and Twitter and other social media. Yeah, and I think uh, that, again, is a question that kind of goes beyond uh, libel law. Uh, but certainly, you know, the meaning of freedom of speech in the social media, social media age is very much uh, up for grabs. And I, I think it's something we should be talking about. The Freedom of Speech and Press Act, a federal bill that would codify Sullivan and protect other free speech measures, has been proposed as a safeguard. It would ensure certain free speech protections nationwide. But why is my sense that the bill is unlikely to pass? Um, this is an issue that, unfortunately, uh, I'm not able to comment on. Um, but you know, I am I am aware that you know there are many um, proposals uh, that are being floated uh, in the event that uh, the Supreme Court does uh, overrule New York Times versus Sullivan. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's become a political thing. Um, Republicans are opposed, and Democrats are in support. I would think that Republicans would also want to have the freedom to say things about their opponents. Certainly, uh, you know, the protections of Sullivan uh, you know, apply uh, across the board. So uh, it would seem, you know, uh, contrary to the uh, interest in, in free speech to want to uh, get rid of the Sullivan standard. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Samantha Barbas. Uh, if you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Actual Malice, Civil Rights and Freedom of the Press in New York Times versus Sullivan. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of London Lopate at large, and we Thank you very much. And return to Samantha Barbas, B-A-R-B-A-S. Her latest book, her seventh, is Actual Malice, Civil Rights and the Freedom and Freedom of the Press in New York Times versus Sullivan, published by the University of California Press. Now, um, last year, Sarah Palin filed a defamation lawsuit against the Times in which she argued that she'd been defamed in an editorial that had linked her political rhetoric to the 2011 mass shooting near Tucson, Arizona that had left six people dead, 14 injured, including uh, a Democratic member of Congress, uh, Gabrielle Gabby Giffords. Yes, that's right. Uh, that was a very uh, high-profile libel trial uh, that occurred uh, last year, and actually, I believe that uh, case is, is being appealed. And one of the arguments is uh, that New York Times versus Sullivan standard, you know, is no longer appropriate in the 21st century. So it's just that the the standards have changed, rather than uh, this is a slightly different kind of case. Um, I haven't looked at the briefs that extensively, but I do know that that is uh, one of the arguments, again, is this challenge to the Sullivan standard based on this notion that Sullivan is outdated uh, and that you know the rules of libel should be rethought to accommodate our new technological climate. Well, the judge in the case said that he would dismiss it if the jury ruled in favor of Palin because her legal team had failed to prove that the newspaper had defamed her. Yeah, I think the issue was uh, whether or not the um, actual malice standard was satisfied in this case. And the jury ruled against Sarah Palin. Yes, that's right. But although that ruling uh, in the Palin case protected Sullivan, didn't it open the door for others who want to revisit Sullivan case and the legal definition of libel? Uh and won't we see some of that when Sarah Palin appeals the decision? Yes, I think that, um, you know, this is one of um, many cases that are ongoing right now, uh, which are sort of being used as vehicles to try to get the Sullivan standard uh, up to the Supreme Court to invite the court to reconsider that standard. Well, it, uh, on the other hand, uh, don't appeals courts tend to side with jury verdicts in most cases? In, in this case, the jury verdict against Sarah Palin? Um, this is a question that I'm going to pass on. Uh, so, again, uh, you know, I'm not following the uh, Palin case that closely, but I do know uh, that the Sullivan standard is one of the questions at issue in the appeal. Well, it only takes four votes from Supreme Court justices for the court to take a case. Yes. Well, aren't there also other cases beside the Palin case that could bring Sullivan before the Supreme Court? Uh, one of the big ones, um, Smartmatic and Dominion Voting Systems. Uh, yes, and this is the uh, case, of course, that has uh, so dominated the news in the past few weeks, uh, in which it appears uh, that there is uh, evidence of actual malice, uh, this reckless disregard of the truth or knowing falsity, right? issuing statements, having strong reason to believe that they're untrue. The, uh, they're suing Fox News for making the false claim that their voting systems were rigged in the 2020 election and that that's what led to Biden's victory over Trump. 
yes. And I think, you know, what has happened in the recent weeks is, you know, kind of the revelation of this um, knowing falsity, uh, which, again, you know, will satisfy the actual malice standard. Well, just 10 days ago, a New York State appeals court rejected Fox News's attempt to dismiss Smartmatic's $2.7 billion lawsuit. Wow, that's a lot of money. Indeed. And Dominion is also suing Fox News for knowingly spreading false information about their voting machines for ratings. Fox's attempt to have the case dismissed was denied in December. Okay, well, yes, uh, this is not yes, in I haven't book. been following this is, this that is litigation. the purview of your book, obviously. It's but, a little beyond the purview of my book, yes. But it is part of the story, and so I thought it was important uh, to bring yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely part of the story of uh, the, you know, continuing relevance of New York Times versus Sullivan uh, and uh, how libel law and the Sullivan standard are intimately connected with politics to this day. Well, hasn't it been argued that if Fox News succeeds, they would be protected by the First Amendment to report on all newsworthy statements, including false ones, without having to assume responsibility for them? Well, I mean, again, it goes back to the actual malice no. standard, Would right? If they, have, if they have published uh, statements with uh, knowing uh, you know, falsity, with this reckless disregard of the truth, uh, then they will not be protected. Um, the issue of newsworthiness, as I understand it, is somewhat peripheral uh, to uh, the question of uh, whether there has been defamation. Well, there are still a number of politicians who claim that the elections they were involved with were stolen, and Donald Trump still claims he won the election. Uh, but that is not uh, does not involve actual malice. Uh, again, um, that's a little bit outside the purview of what I've done with the history of Sullivan. Uh, you write, and this is a long quote. As the Sullivan story makes clear, libel law before Sullivan held the potential to destroy news media seeking to hold officials accountable and to inform the public about critical issues of the day. It had a chilling effect on citizens seeking to use free expression to achieve social justice, and the Supreme Court in 1964 saw vividly how libel law could be used to persecute critics of government and the status quo, how libel suits could be mobilized to stifle public discourse and to impede social change. So um, are we living in a different world than we were pre-1964? Um, I think that there are many politicians and public officials who would be more than happy to use a libel law to uh, stifle the press and to sue it out of existence uh, if you know, libel laws were stricter. I don't think that the fundamental kind of impulse to want to quash one's enemies uh, has changed. It's just that libel law has become much more protective of speakers. And so as I try to suggest in the book, you know, we could very well have a return to this kind of libel warfare that we saw in the early 1960s uh, if the Sullivan standard were to be altered. So what else needs to be done to protect Sullivan now? Um, I think that uh, the Sullivan standard, Sullivan itself, the Sullivan case, is not likely to be overruled. But these cases that extended Sullivan to libel cases involving uh, public figures uh, may be more at risk. Uh, and I'm actually not certain uh, what uh, we can do to attempt to protect uh, the Sullivan line of cases. Uh, I'm sure there are people out there who are making suggestions, but uh, is actual malice going <laughs> to be the deciding factor? 
Well, the actual malice standard uh, applies, you know, in all of these uh, libel cases and involving uh, public officials and public figures. And so if, you know, the Supreme Court were to alter uh, any part of that doctrine, it, that would represent a, a change you know, to the actual malice standard. It would it would change the standard, presumably. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is uh, Samantha Barbas. Her latest book, Actual Malice, Civil Rights and Freedom of the Press in New York Times versus Sullivan, published by the University of California Press. What kind of uh, feedback have you gotten from uh, your, your peers in response to this book? You know, uh, the book was just published hmm. a couple of days ago, so I haven't received you haven't that much, much feedback. commentary yet. Um, but uh, I really hope that the book is going to shed light on not only, you know, the importance of Sullivan, both to freedom of speech and civil rights, but to help bolster this argument of why we need the Sullivan protections more than ever today. What solutions have been offered to protect public figures and all of us from defamation um, in the press and on social media? Have so, new, new solutions been been proposed? Well, one of the kind of animating ideas uh, of the New York Times versus Sullivan uh, decision was that uh, public figures and public officials can act to protect their own reputations through engaging in counter speech. That is, if something critical is published or said about a powerful person, they have an opportunity to kind of talk back to that statement, right? And today, of course, we can go online, we can put our version of the truth on social media, we have opportunities to um, confront criticism and statements that we believe to be false. Um, so that remains, you know, kind of a tried and true way of dealing with personal attacks and defamation is to exercise this sort of self-help, to sort of talk back to the critics. Uh the uh, the court was very different, uh, as I said, when it made the decision on on Sullivan and New York Times, um, written by William Brennan. Um, now, I, how many of the members of the court at that time are still on the court? Do we know? Uh, all of the justices uh, have uh, passed away from uh, uh, that period. So it's a totally different court. Yes. And, and, I, and I mentioned earlier that uh, there has been uh, legislation proposed, the Freedom of Speech and Press Act, that would codify Sullivan and protect other free speech measures. Um, have you heard anything about the, its, its the possibility of its passage? Uh, again, I haven't been uh, following that uh, that proposal. Well, what would you like to add to this conversation? Well, I I think that you know this discussion that we're having nationally about New York Times versus Sullivan and whether it should be retained uh, is kind of a broader conversation we're having culturally about uh, freedom of speech and really what direction we want freedom of speech to go in in our very complicated times in our you know contentious era uh, dominated as it is by political polarization and by social media communications. Uh, I think, you know, kind of collectively, we're trying to decide whether we want to keep the rules of free speech that were created 50 or more years ago, like New York Times versus Sullivan, or whether we want to kind of update those laws and principles to meet our new realities. And it's really my hope that history can help to inform these debates. And that was a part a part of the project of the book was really to um, kind of bring a historical angle on these uh, debates and controversies that are more important than ever. Well, I do a radio show, and I could say all sorts of defamatory things about people uh, in public life or even in private life. Um, what are the rules that I have to live by? Um, I, the rules of libel uh, will uh, apply regardless of the medium in which one is communicating. So uh, 
the same standard applies to newspapers, uh, radio, and other mass media. So I just shouldn't lie about somebody. Uh, knowing falsity, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but the, the, our history has been filled with stories of knowing falsity. Does that matter? Um, I mean, does the that Civil matter War, in terms the Civil of war was based on knowing falsity to some degree? I think I'll have to pass on that question. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm being, no, it's okay. uh, being a pain. Um, is there anything else you would like to address before we end this conversation? Um, I think that, uh, you know, I hope again that, you know, this, this history uh, I've uh, brought to light um, can, uh, you know, shed light on these uh, dimensions of Sullivan that haven't yet been explored in the uh cultural and legal commentary on it. Hmm. Well, I'm interested in what happens in the Sarah Palin case uh, and also in the Smartmatic and Dominion voting systems cases because, uh, as we said uh, during the conversation, the courts have, to some degree, become more conservative over the years. No? Yes, Yes, it will be interesting, um, you know, to to see um, how how these disputes are resolved, and and I'm really interested in in kind of also the the social dialogue that that they'll spark. Uh, meanwhile, what happened with the Alabama city commissioner? Did he just Elvis lose? Sullivan? Yes, Mr. Sullivan. Did he just lose his job? Um, no, Sullivan remained uh, employed. Uh, I think he passed away in the 1970s at a relatively young age. Uh, his reputation really was not injured in his community. Uh, and, you know, he uh, went on with his, you know, uh, otherwise obscure life, right? His uh, notoriety and his claim to fame was you know, having brought a libel suit that resulted in this critically important free speech precedent. Well, how has Sullivan's influence uh, been used to protect, you mentioned this earlier, free speech, freedom of the press, and other civil rights? So its, mm-hmm. its influence has gone far beyond the the case of defamation by an ad in a newspaper? That's right. Um, in the Sullivan opinion, Justice Brennan made some very important comments about the role of freedom of the press and freedom of speech in democracy quite broadly. Uh, And those statements, again, kind of discussing a national commitment to this uninhibited, robust and wide open discourse and the idea that the central meaning of the First Amendment is the right of citizens to criticize their leaders. Those statements and principles were mobilized in many other Supreme Court decisions on freedom of speech and press having nothing to do with libel. So it really sort of lay the groundwork for modern First Amendment jurisprudence prudence and had very wide-ranging effects. And then we have politicians who lie. (laughs) I'm not going to mention any names, but there have been a couple who've been caught recently. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Are you working on a new project? Um, I'm actively looking for another project um, in the general realm of free speech history. I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. Samantha Barbas, Actual Malice is her book, Actual Malice, Civil Rights and Freedom of the Press in New York Times versus Sullivan, published by the University of California Press. It's her seventh book. Uh, They've been on mass media law and history. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for all of her help in preparing this segment and to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all of the invaluable work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. 
Now, before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. You may um, have been hearing uh, some of the broadcasts that we've had recently about just what a terrible financial bind the station finds itself in right now. So it's not just a matter of asking you to support BAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., but I'm asking you to help keep WBAI, a very important voice in New York radio, alive as well with your support. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org or give and the word T-O-W-B-A-I.org. Please do it right now because we need your help to keep this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And I'm sure that you realize that when you're listening to today's show, that it's Nobody is doing this kind of thing in depth the way we are allowed to do here. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Actual Malice, Civil Rights, and Freedom of the Press in New York Times versus Sullivan by Samantha Barbas. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy, which allows us to plan for the future because you would become a member for 10, 15, 20, 25, however many dollars a month you wish uh, until you decide that you want to end that. But meanwhile, we would know that another check is coming in next month and the month after. And if you do that, we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now or go online right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donation. We don't take ads or foundation grants which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play your part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And uh, we uh, that's it for today's show, but we hope that you can join us again on Monday when our guest will be historian Naomi Oreskes discussing her new book, The Big Myth. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. 